So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so, with the right innovation. Uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty. World's energy. biggest energy agencies believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more than. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Special. Hello, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Politicians and activists have been arguing for decades over the merits of cap-and-trade programs that limit greenhouse gas emissions and put a price on any emissions that exceed those limits. Proponents have said cap-and-trade can lower emissions in a way that's driven by the market. Opponents have said these programs could increase the prices of products and cost jobs. There's an often criticized cap-and-trade program in Europe. China is in the process of launching its own. And we've had regional cap-and-trade programs operating in the U.S. and Canada for a while now. There's one in California that partners with Quebec and Ontario. And there's REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative that involves nine northeastern and mid-Atlantic states. That number nine could increase as New Jersey and Virginia consider joining. So these existing markets can offer some evidence to how well cap-and-trade markets perform, both in their stated aim to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and in their effects on the economy. With us today is Sue Tierney, a highly regarded expert on energy policy and economics, specializing in the energy and gas industries. She is a former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Energy under President Bill Clinton, and she has been a State Cabinet Officer for Environmental Affairs in Massachusetts, a Massachusetts Public Utilities Commissioner, and she's now a Senior Advisor with Analysis Group, where she just completed an independent study of the effects of the REGI program on the northeastern states and their economies. Sue, welcome to Off the Charts. Thank you, Jeff. So tell us about this study. Why did you look at um, Reggie and why? Well, from the very beginning of the program, as the northeast states were trying to figure out whether they could cooperate and control power sector carbon emissions, there was pushback, uh, as you might guess, and much of the pushback originally was a concern that there would be a drag on the economies of the Northeast states. There was a concern that if those states led the way, it would put them at a competitive disadvantage. And so we were asked by a number of foundations several years ago to take a look at this question. If this is a program designed to control carbon, it's an environmental program, but at what cost to the economy? So we studied that. We studied that in 2012, looking back at Reggie's first three years. We studied the second three years of the program in a report in 2015. 
And then finally, we just released this newest report about the years between 2015 and 2017 to see whether or not the impacts of Reggie's carbon price was harming the economy in those states. Um, before we talk about what you found, I want to ask you if you feel like these findings could be crucial to whether New Jersey and Virginia decide to join. I assume so. I, the policymakers in those states are very interested in understanding what, if any, costs there could be for joining Reggie or doing some other kind of control over carbon emissions from their power sectors. And in fact, we know that many states around the country are looking at this question of what, if anything, they should do to control carbon emissions from, from their own economies. So we do think it could be relevant and helpful. Um, the study covered three years, 2015, 2016, 2017, correct? The most recent one, during which Reggie had implemented a new lower cap on emissions and I believe a higher price if uh, on anyone who exceeds that cap. Is that right? How dramatic were those changes? The changes introduced a few years ago in the program were quite significant. In the early years of Reggie, the states weren't sure whether or not this was going to be too tight on the economy's belt. How was that for a metaphor? And they set a cap... Uh, in the first instance, a cap on the number of carbon emissions that could come from power generation. They set that cap based on a relatively um, gentle curbing of carbon emissions. And at the time they did that, however, the economy collapsed in 2009. Uh, electricity demand fell short. And as a result of that, that original cap on carbon emissions was not really binding. Uh, emissions were much lower than that because of those economic conditions. Plus, natural gas was turning really cheap during that period, and natural gas emits way less carbon than burning coal. So that, too, made it so that the original cap was not binding. So several years ago, the state said, well, why don't we put in place a much tighter cap, a lower total number of carbon emissions that are allowed to be emitted from uh, power plants. And so they set that almost a 45% reduction in the cap and then continued to see 2.5% reduction in carbon emissions per year. That may sound gentle, but in fact, that's a much more aggressive target. And you're right. What happened was less supply uh, there was more competition amongst power plant owners to get a hold of those allowances. They were willing to bid up the price, and the price of allowances went up. All told, though, we're seeing those carbon emissions go down. They're not exceeding the cap. And indeed, the states are still selling carbon allowances into the market in a way that is generating revenues for the benefit of the public in those states. So you made an important point there, which is that the price was driven up by the market, not not set by the government. Exactly right. And the way that works is every quarter, the states collectively put up for auction their allowances. And then uh, the marketplace responds with a price. And if there's 
too many allowances out there, the price is really low, which was what happened a couple of years ago. Now the prices are tighter and uh, we're seeing a, a bigger price on carbon. And even so, uh, the, uh, it, the, the program seems to be working very well. What is the price, by the way? The price is around, I don't know what it is this quarter, but it's been around six bucks per uh, megawatt hour, per, okay. per, per ton, excuse me. Per ton. So let's talk about what you found, um, starting with the economic impacts. We found that, surprisingly, the program produces economic benefits for the region, and that results from quite a few different things. Uh, one of the things that happens is that when these power plant owners purchase allowances, the states receive those monies, and then they plow it back into the economy in a number of different ways. Uh, they have job training for clean energy industries. They have uh, investments in renewable energy projects. Uh, sometimes they're simply giving a credit on customers' electricity bills so that customers actually have more money in their pockets to do what they want to do with it. And in fact, uh, the thing that states spend most of the money on is energy efficiency measures, uh, insulation, light bulbs, uh, more efficient equipment, making it possible for those customers to use less energy and save money. So those are the benefits that are really flowing to consumers associated with this program. And so that's a net benefit of uh, 1.4 billion that we found for the economies of these nine states in the last three years. Now it sounds like there's, there's a direct benefit in certain areas, like these energy efficiency technologies that are purchased. Yes. And then an indirect benefit in other areas which comes from the consumers having more money in their pockets. Exactly. Okay. And one of the things we did in our economic modeling of this program that we describe in our report is that when people have more money in their pockets, they spend it in different ways. And there are ways to track the kinds of savings or expenditures on uh, on things in retail establishments, restaurants, a variety of other things that are indirect effects of those benefits, too. Terrific. Now, um, I understand there's an additional benefit from the reduced cost of importing fossil fuels. Yes. Is that included in the $1.4 billion? Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, I, the, the model that we have uh, of the investment activity and how it rolls out into the economy takes into account money that goes out of the nine states versus uh, dollar flows that are coming into those nine states. So to the extent that a consumer has put in place insulation in their home, then they're buying, say, less natural gas to heat their home, and there's virtually no natural gas produced in the Reggie region. So that not only does the consumer keep those savings in their pocket, but the savings are, can be uh, enjoyed in the Reggie region's economy as well. What was the impact on the power plant owners? Power plant owners inevitably end up producing less electricity over time when you have a system that is investing in energy efficiency and reducing customers' demand for electricity. So over time, power plant owners don't get to produce as much of their product, and they see 
an, a net economic loss as a result of that. So consumers are getting more of the benefit, uh, and, and the owners of fossil power plants are seeing less electricity sales. Now, that said, producers of power that emit no carbon, uh, like nuclear plants, uh, wind, solar projects, those in those types of facilities enjoy a slight advantage in the marketplace relative to fossil fuel power plant owners because those zero carbon electricity sources don't have to buy allowances. So they can produce power and they're going to see a little bit higher revenue as a result of the overall system, including the cost of carbon. It's interesting that nuclear is included in that because a lot of uh, people in the nuclear industry and states are looking for ways to help that industry right now. That is exactly right. And in the scheme of things, the Reggie carbon price is still pretty gentle relative to the economist's social cost of carbon. Social cost of carbon is much higher per ton than the Reggie prices. So e producers of electricity like existing nuclear plants are not really being fully compensated for the value they are providing in terms of avoiding carbon emissions. Same is true for, uh, for, so, for solar and wind as well. Now, um, there was an increase in jobs from this as well. Where were the jobs realized? A variety of places. In terms of the direct effects on the economy, uh, a, an energy efficiency program could involve people who are working on doing audits of buildings to see where they could button up the, the building to pr use less electricity. There are job training programs, so there's educators involved in it. There are investors in renewable projects, and there are people actually installing efficient equipment in commercial and residential buildings. So those are direct kinds of jobs. But then there's all those indirect jobs when people have more money in their pockets, they might go out to eat more often, they might spend uh, more on consumer goods. So the, those jobs are tracked as well. And those are general jobs in the economy. Um, it sounds like when you have a number of sectors that are benefiting, and but you have a couple that have reduced revenue, right? The, the fossil fuel people. Yes. That could affect, it seems to me, the, the political stance that these different people take toward Reggie. Has there been blowback from the fossil fuel people? By now, in the Northeast, the power generators understand how Reggie operates. They understand that it is a market-based approach. They like the way that Reggie was designed to be technology neutral. Uh, it's really carbon content of, uh, um, of fuel gener of electricity generation that is the, the thing that uh, is, the, is the hallmark of the program. So they're comfortable with it, except for the fact that they feel like the Reggie states are out there alone. So all else equal, they would like to see everybody under a similar kind of program. Uh, finally, I think that these power generators have become comfortable with the fact that Reggie dovetails quite perfectly with the way that the wholesale electricity markets work. And so they feel that's a pretty efficient way to design a public policy. And so in that sense, they understand that 
the states have gone down the route of controlling carbon, and there's been a, a general understanding that this is a better way than not to do it. Now, it's sort of implied in that answer um, is the fact that Reggie's been a while, around for a while now, right? You've done three three-year studies, so it's been a decade or almost a decade that the program has um, been active. So how, I want to know how the results from this last three years compared to the earlier periods. Let's start with that. So we found for this last three years a $1.4 billion gain to the nine states' economies. In the first three years of the program, in fact, there were 10 states involved. New Jersey did participate originally for the first three years. And in that initial period, the uh, economic benefit that we found was $1.6 billion. The second three-year period was one in which New Jersey left. We were left with nine states. The economic benefit in that period was $1.3 billion as well. So we're seeing cons relatively consistent positive benefits above a billion dollars. And we like to talk about this as on the order of $4 billion over these nine years. And the reason I say that is because the numbers I just gave to you are apples and oranges in terms of the vintage of the dollars in those years. So we can't add them up perfectly, but we, we are very comfortable saying that this is a net positive um, gain for the, these economies on the order of at least $4.4 billion. We also found that there were jobs created to the tune of 44,000 over that nine-year period as well. And I want to be clear, those are job years as if those were full-time job equivalent for one full year, when many of those jobs really are episodic and some of them go on for many years. So with um, uh, Reggie having this track record, I'm, I've been sort of asking you these questions as if you're affiliated with, with Reggie, but you're actually an independent person who, and, and the analysis group conducted an independent analysis of this. So you have some objective perspective on this. Um, Reggie's been around for a while. Do you feel like it can serve as a model for, for other states that are thinking about implementing cap-and-trade programs themselves? The design of Reggie absolutely is an opportunity for other states who are interested in controlling carbon in a way that really works nicely for reliability and for the efficiency of electric generation. Of course, there are some regions of the country where there's uh, a heavier coal percentage in the power sector generation. So in that instance, uh, there are some there's some concerns about whether or not these, this kind of program will disadvantage coal. In fact, of course, that's in part one of the rationales is that a higher emitting source of electricity should pay its way in terms of its cost of carbon. So if, if a state is interested in co controlling carbon for a variety of reasons, local jobs, economic um, the economic costs of climate change, a variety of different things. Reggie's design is a great opportunity to look at a market-based efficient model of doing it. 
Now, when you say, when you specify that the design is an opportunity, does that suggest that there are some specifics that should be, um, I don't know, patterned differently for different states or different regions? Great question. One of the things that Reggie did, which was very important to the states voluntarily doing this together, was that each state reserved for itself the right to figure out how to move the carbon dioxide allowances into the market. At the time, originally, there was a debate about whether they should be given away for free to power generators, whether they should be given to the wires companies, who are the electric utilities, who who in this region don't really own power plants, uh, whether they should be auctioned. And the state said, okay, each state can decide for itself, but each state commits to at least 25% of the allowances having their value work for the public benefit. So that was the deal. In fact, all of the states decided to auction collectively almost all of the allowances. And those monies that flow from those auctions, those proceeds are used for the benefit of the public. So in, in fact, that was a design choice and implementation that gave the states a lot of cre credibility and integrity about how they wanted to do it. They chose quite a, uh, an ambitious way to auction them off. There are other states who may not want to make that choice. There are some states where there may be vertically integrated utilities. So the, the local wires companies also owns power plants. And if that power plant doesn't have to buy allowances in the market, that may be benefiting the consumers of that particular power uh, utility. But uh, so I think that there are ways for states to implement elements of the Reggie design that don't violate the principle, which is this is a market-based approach and it can work with power generation in a way that controls carbon and also does it without a drag on the economy. Are there um, any other aspects of Reggie that if, if some states or a region came to you and said, what should we not do like them? Is there anything that comes to mind? a hard one. F from the point of view of pricing carbon so that it signals to the marketplace ha that there, there really are costs of em emitting carbon into the atmosphere, this is a pretty good one. You could, you could do other approaches. Um, China, for example, is proposing to do a carbon trading program. And they are saying the way that they're going to do it is by controlling the rate of emissions associated with each unit of electricity. So rather than having a whole cap and figuring out who's going to buy allowances and who's going to buy generate electricity, what will happen in China, we understand, is that they'll say everyone must meet a performance target of X tons per megawatt hour of electricity produced. And then they can trade. Some could emit higher, some could emit lower, but on average, they would hit that performance target. That would be a different way to go, but it's also market-based, which is a, a, a pretty uh, grounded principle for a country like China. That's, that's pretty good. Um, 
when the, when the US Environmental Protection Agency was proposing its clean power plan, which is now stayed by the US Supreme Court, this, the EPA gave to states the right to decide whether they wanted to do a cap and trade program, whether they wanted to use this emissions rate approach. And at the end of the day, it's hard to trade across those two programs. So you can trade with somebody, if you're in a cap and trade state, you can trade with somebody in another cap and trade state. As long as the currency of one ton of carbon is the same and equivalent in both places, uh, you can have trading there. But the performance-based approach, they have to trade with each other too. So mm -hmm. it's hard to have uh, a common market with those different currencies, if you will. And I think that's, um, at the time of the clean power plan, that was causing a lot of vexation in the marketplace about which way to go. And some people might feel they win more in one approach versus another. And then finally, of course, that you could set up a tax. And a tax is one where the price of carbon is pretty certain, because you know if you're going to admit this is the tax you're going to pay. But the thing that's uncertain there is then how many emissions you're going to get. So one of the big debates between tax advocates versus cap and trade advocates is typically a cap is hard on the environmental measure, which is total emissions shall not go over X, Y, Z. And so price varies depending upon demand for producing power with carbon. And a tax is much more certain in terms of what a firm knows it's going to have to pay. But the emissions are uncertain there. Okay. So um, during this most recent period that you studied, 2015, 2016, 2017, there was also a lot of broad growth in the economy. Um, it took place over the same period. Is any of the economic gain that you've found attributable to that broader growth? I think we've controlled for that in our study. What we do in our study is we take the real world as it existed in 2015 through the end of 2017. We know that in the real world in those states, there was actual power produced to meet actual demand that reflected economic activity in that region. And we know what the price of carbon was because it was a fact as it existed in those auctions. So then what we do is we run a simulation of the electric industry where we pull out the price of carbon, we adjust demand only for taking into consideration those energy efficiency measures that reduce demand, but the inherent economic drivers of demand were kept in place and so forth so that we, we, we know the real picture on carbon emissions and power costs and then we know a simulated world without Reggie and we compare the two. So we think the underlying growth in uh, economic recovery is, um, is, this is above and beyond that. Okay. Let's say we had a federal government that was inactive in controlling emissions. Hypothetically. Yeah, just, to, just as a hypothetical. Do you think these regional markets could provide a way to fill that gap? In many ways, yes. 
um, I do think that there is a value internationally of having a clear federal or national program. But at the end of the day, what we are seeing in real life is that actors in states and local governments and in the private sector are taking their own steps, not only with these kinds of carbon control programs, but also collateral policies, uh, renewable portfolio standards, energy efficiency programs, um, programs that are designed to encourage consumers to put uh, photovoltaic solar panels on their roofs, a variety of different things. So you can build up from the grassroots a hodgepodge of carbon policies that, that make up, by and large, a national program. It's not enough. It's great, and it's wonderful when there's, as you say, hypothetical inaction coming from the federal government, but there are pieces of the puzzle that are missing in terms of signaling to the outside world that we're, we're, we're doing our job to make the American commitments real. Is there potential for regional markets to combine? Right now, we only have, we have, you know, two on the coasts, but if we had more regional markets, could they eventually combine into a national program? You could imagine that. They, again, need to be harmonized. California's market covers the entire California economy. So refineries are covered under their cap, the transportation sector, the industrial sector. In the Northeast, it's just the power sector. So they need to really be uh, aligned to make sure that there isn't either free riding somewhere and, and that they're really focusing on common uh, common carbon emissions reductions. Uh, the Northeast states are beginning to think about a transportation sector, Reggie. Uh, and so there could be ways in which the states are moving to harmonize, you know, bit by bit and create that regional program. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the whole world. So the Paris Agreement anticipates markets like Reggie uh, to provide a lot of the emissions uh, reductions that it seeks. During the climate conference, the Paris Climate Conference, when they were forging that agreement, there was a lot of discussion and debate about whether or not it was binding, whether or not it was enforceable. And one point that came out is that um, these markets can serve as enforcement mechanisms in themselves. Uh, do you see that? I can see a strong piece of evidence for that because those parties who are involved in these bona fide markets want to make sure that they, if they're buying an allowance, that it has value and that they're not wasting their money if the thing were to collapse and not be enforced against the other people that they're competing with. So I can definitely see that this provides its own uh, momentum for enforcement. Additionally, there's lots of transparency and tracking and public information available, which also reinforces that uh, ability to have people say, wa watching what's happening and use that as an enforcement tool as well. Well, thank you very much, Sue, for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. 
This was fun, and I appreciate your questions. And thanks to all of you listening out there. Please be sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on EPIC's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Jeff McMahon.